So, hey guys, we're back with another podcast interview, and oh my gosh, I've been wanting to interview this guy for such a long time. I'm a huge fan of what he does, and uh, today we have Garner Polinsky, and Garner wrote a book uh, called Wyatt Earp in San Diego, Life After Tombstone, and for me, I... I really didn't know that Wyatt Earp had gone to San Diego. And in my early research, I had gone down to uh, San Diego or after Googling Wyatt Earp in San Diego, and there's a place called the the Oyster Bar. And is that correct, the Oyster Bar? Yes, I think that's the name of the place. So the Oyster Bar. And I had assumed, because Google... And everybody said, oh, yeah, that's that's the place. That's where Wyatt lived, and that's where he did business. And I did this post on Facebook, and uh, and I did a post about the, the, the bar. And out of nowhere, this guy shows up, and he's like, no, that's not true. That's, that's not where he was at. He was in another part of San Diego. And if you want to know about Wyatt Earp in San Diego, you should read my book because I've researched it. I'm like, oh, okay. And like... You know, I don't. I don't even think I responded, and so I'm. I'm. I'm friends with uh, uh, John Bosnecker, who's a, a New York Times bestseller, is an amazing author and historian. And I reached out to John and I said, "Who's this guy?" And he goes, "Oh, you wanna you wanna friend him?" He says he's he's a top notch researcher and historian, and uh, he wrote a book. He probably the best book about White Earp in San Diego. So if he says it about Wyatt Earp in San Diego. If he says it, and this is what's true, he says, you got to listen to him. So I was like, oh, okay, well, all right. And then I saw him down in Tombstone uh, for a TTR event, which is the Tombstone Territory Rendezvous. And we ended up meeting, and, and I bought the book, and I was blown away, not only at the quality of the book, because the pages are a, are a high gloss, but the amount of information packed into the book. So that's how I met Garner. And I've been wanting to interview him for such a long time. And here we are today. But I want to also thank my friends over at the Wild West History Association. Uh, we have the the uh, roundup coming up in July up in Deadwood. So hopefully you can go to wildwesthistory.org and I can see you in uh, Deadwood in July. I also want to thank my friends over at uh, the Tombstone Epitaph, Mark Boardman at tombstoneepitaph.com. Uh, I urge you to do the, the three-year, I think, uh, I don't have the pricing in front of me. I think it's 75 bucks for three years. Uh, if I'm wrong, it's my actually it's $60 for three years. And uh, uh, I don't have all my notes with me. I'm in business. I'm on a business trip in San Diego. And if you saw me doing the podcast today, I'm, I'm coming to you from my bathroom closet. So I apologize if things, if you hear some background noise, that could be just people outside moving around in the, in the hotel. But Garner is somebody that you guys really want to know. And, and again, his book is called Wyatt Earp in San Diego, Life After Tombstone. Uh, you can find this book on Amazon. Uh, that's the best place to get it. It's well worth it. There are some insane pictures, beautiful pictures on the inside and newspaper clippings and all sorts of wonderful stuff is inside that you will not find anywhere unless you actually spent time deep into museums and digging deep and, and traveling all over the country. And Garner's done that for you and he's put it all into a beautiful book. When I say it's, it is probably one of the most beautiful books, history books that I have in my collection. 
So definitely, if you're interested in learning more about Wyatt Earp in San Diego, not only San Diego, but his time in Harkahala, Arizona, and his travels throughout San Diego County, you want to go on Amazon and purchase the book, Wyatt Earp in San Diego, Life After Tombstone. So welcome, sir. I hope I didn't butter you up too much. Oh, you did a good job on that, Mike. So good morning to you. Well, I, I'll follow you around when you go on world tours, and I'll do your intro, and then I'll <laughs> I'll step off the stage. It's a deal. <laughs> a deal, done. Um, so I mentioned a little bit about your book. I actually mentioned a lot about your book. But how did you end up – how did a guy in in – in San Diego, who's living this great life, you know, beautiful, one of the most beautiful cities in the country. How did you end up in Western history? That's a really interesting question. So growing up, I never realized any of this before um, until I got a little older. Growing up, my father was really into Western history. His family, the Polenskys, have been Western settlers in Kansas. They came from Germany, settled on the frontiers. And my dad was always showing me newspaper clippings of the first non-native kid born in that area was a relative of his, and it went on and on. And then in the bigger picture, I saw, I started correlating all this Western stuff my dad was doing, like he taught me to shoot the family shotgun, which was a, what, 20-gauge Hercules breech load single barrel shotgun that is like great grandfather learned to shoot with so he taught me these things we went on vacation to mexico went horseback riding i never realized how deep he was in the western history and it definitely rubbed off on me we did um a lot of time in the mojave desert riding our motorcycles and that always included going to some kind of ghost town you know ransburg whatever so that was in the back of my mind and the story of how I did the book was I was um, in a bookstore in Old Town and I saw a book called White in San Diego. It was done by Ken Klitsch, which was the first book. Nice guy. I met Ken. And I thought, wow, I'm going to Maui with my family. It'd be a fun book to read on the plane. But I figured I'd go to Ken Klitsch's museum, buy it from him, get him to sign it. So I did that. I read it and I was pretty interested in it. Um, so... Then I started, like probably you and everybody else, reading all the, the larger works on Wyatt Earp, you know, like um, Casey's book and just all the good books. I also found a lot of Ben Trawick books to be good. So I was reading all these, and I'm an engineer. I do engineering research, among other things. So when I saw the disparity in a, of opinion of Wyatt Earp, it confused me, and I wasn't sure what to make of it. Um, my wife made probably a mistake um, that she regret, regrets still. For my 50th birthday, she goes, let's go to Tombstone and you can ask Ben Trawick those questions. Like, oh, yeah, this will be the best. So I took like one of Ben's books, The Chronicles, as an icebreaker to get him to sign it. So we go there. I'm nervous. He signs it. He thinks I'm another tourist, you know, telling lies about White Earp. He starts drilling me with questions like, what is Ike Clanton's middle name? Clearly, that is his middle name. We all know. So it went on for three hours, and he wanted to get rid of me. So this is the key moment. So he says, yeah, i got to go eat dinner. So we walk out. If you've ever been to the Epitaph Museum in Tombstone, it's pretty much at Fifth and Allen. 
So right across from um, the Epitaph is Ben's or was Ben's bookstore live work area. So I walked outside. If you've been to that area, you'll know mm-hmm. how this is described. But I came off the boardwalk and then something told me to turn around and look towards Ben's office. And that office has a window where his desk is and you'd see him in there working a lot. So when I turned around and looked in the window, it was like magic. It was a lightning bolt just hit me and just told me I wanted to be involved. And I didn't know what it meant. I was confused. I was talking to my wife about the flight back. And then it kind of came more to me that I wanted to be involved in the wider history to see if I could straighten some of it out or just learn about it. So I was thinking of all the topics and I remember Ken's book and thought, man, there's got to be more to that. So that started the project. I didn't know what it was going to be. You know, I write a lot of reports, so I can write okay. So I started just doing the research, which was cool. Then I thought I'd do a paper. Then it got deeper and then deeper and deeper. And I worked with Ben, and he encouraged me, and it became a book. So it was a special moment that day in Tombstone. I kind of got the wider bug, maybe people um, talk about now it's expanded to other stuff in history, but that's just the long story of that, Mike. So you're you're cruising down this road, big, fat, and sassy, <laughs> and loving life, San Diego. You're researching the book, and there were were there truths that were exposed that you didn't see. Or maybe that's the wrong way to say it. Were there were there things that you found out that other writers had written about that was totally not true? And did you yeah, stay like, away from those by not because if you if as a writer and a story and if you end up going in a direction and saying, Well, everything that, that Mike wrote is not true, did you find out that because a lot of people don't write about the Herps in San Diego. They mostly write about, you know, um tombstone. They write about Los Angeles. They write about his travels. I mean, you even wrote in the book about White Earp in, in Chicago. You you unearthed information that he went to the World's Fair or, or something like that. And you unearthed all this information about horse racing and, and the names of his horses, which we'll talk about later. But all this information, did you find out stuff that wasn't true or maybe was stretched in the truth? Well, I know as a research, when I do engineering research, I'm a fire engineer, so it's usually fire-based, you always start the project with a literature search to see what's been published. And from there, you know, that's a good lead-in. You can look at all the big works and see the footnotes and then kind of go down the pass. In the case of San Diego, Ken's book was pretty informal. He's a good guy, too, so I don't want to say anything negative about him, but he's not like a paid research guy like me. So... When I started digging into it, of course, I went down those paths. There weren't many footnotes in that book, so it turned out most of that was oral history, and it wasn't. It was third-hand oral history. So, um, I mean, to show how evasive the non-truths were about White in San Diego, my friends told me to name the book what White Earp didn't do in San Diego Mm. and go through each one of them. So most of what you know in his time in San Diego before I published my book is not true. When he got there, not true, you know, on and on and on. So, yeah, I did that, and then that just takes you to more research, and then things just start unfolding before your eyes when you're doing this research, and I got help from a lot of people that knew tidbits about it, 
so yeah, that's um, kind of the approach. Proper approach probably is a literature search that would flesh that stuff out. Like, so after Tombstone, which was such a small part of his life, after Tombstone, he's he ends up in California, and then he ends or the Los Angeles area, San Bernardino County. He's in Colton for a while in San Bernardino Redlands uh, area, and then he ends up in Los Angeles. Am I wrong in my timeline? And gets into Los Angeles, and then goes down to San Diego because he San Diego was a part of his life. It was a small part, but it was a big part. So tell us about Wyatt in San Diego. Well, how he gets to San Diego, we know we have the gun battle, Fremont Street gun battle, then the vendetta, then he's fleeing Arizona. He eventually right. ends up in, and I know this from the register of the St. James Hotel in San Diego, he ends up in Douglas, Wyoming, as he's going west to go see his parents. And at this time, you know, post-gun battle, Virgil is in Colton with his parents recovering with his wife. So we know he went to Douglas, Wyoming. Then he went, that was a boom town. He mm-hmm. went to um, Colton and met with his parents. Now, Virgil had been in San Diego. That's 1886, summertime. Um, in 1885, Virgil was in San Diego. And that's right about the time that San Diego went into this giant boom. The railroad came down from Los Angeles, so you could easily get down there. And all our coastal property, Coronado, et cetera, became really valuable land. And there was all this commotion about it, land sales. And that's when the gambling went crazy. And Virgil was down there in 85 when it was happening just to visit and came back. And when Wyatt met with Virgil, he mentioned it was a wide open town. The police didn't enforce the gambling laws. And that's when Wyatt decided to come to San Diego. So he came to San Diego in November. Um, The register from the St. James Hotel is November 3rd, 1886. So that's kind of the chronology of how he got there. So for, for those that are listening and might know San Diego, that area is around modern day Horton Plaza. That's a really good way to describe it. That was, I mean, there wasn't much to the city anyways in real estate, but that's a great way to describe it for, see, what did I do? I did a walking tour of where Wyatt was in San Diego once, and I had this thing called kind of Wyatt San Diego, and it's a Google map shot, screenshot of Horton Plaza, and then to the south, and that's where Wyatt Earp was most of the time. So Wyatt's in this area, and it's a very nice area, correct? Um, at that time, it was okay if you went south of there, you got into the stingery, mm-hmm. which was the bad area of the gas lamp, and that wasn't any place you wanted to be. The police didn't enforce a lot of the laws. Crime rate was pretty high. I studied um, crime rate data and compared it. I was doing saloon per capita, which is a good way to measure lawlessness. And I know it was high. It didn't match up with Tombstone, of course. But it was a wild area where, I don't know, murder was so prevalent, but certainly people would get shanghaied and thrown on a ship. People were cheating and gambling, all that kind of stuff. So south of Horton Plaza was a a nasty area where most of the gambling took place. So talk a little more about that, because the Stingery, Stinger, I can't even say it, the Stingery um, is an area, and you talk about being Shanghai, because can you 
like expand on that because that's crazy to think about that somebody goes into this area into what's now the gas lamp area correct yes and the gas lamp area if you haven't been to modern day san diego like now is a beautiful area and there's trolley cars that go around the road and there's shopping and all this stuff but during wyatt's time can you expand on the gas lamp and the stingery and how people ended up being beat up their money's taken and then they end up on a ship yeah well again the town was pretty wild um it really wasn't even legally a town at that time they had a funny relationship where the city um what could you say the the mayor etc weren't even real city officials because the city had gone bankrupt a couple times so you had the common council ruled the city and the mayor which you'll like the story when we get to it was william hunsinger Mm -hmm familiar name and he was like the chairman of that so it was pretty wild we also had the dynamic of you had the police chief um joseph coin so um the police didn't make a lot of money then so it was common you know that we might call it graft now back then they called it um tips and gratuities so the police wouldn't enforce any of the gambling laws and they were strict laws and you know, about the time the expansion hit in 85, the normal citizens were not happy that it was becoming so wild and told the police to crack down. And they had public hearings, which we'll talk about, too. But um, it was wild. There were comments about, I guess, the Stingery name would say it all. The Stingery name, they called it the Stingery because you could be stung as quickly as you could if you went into the ocean close by by a Stingery. That's where that slang comes from. So um, people would be, um, I did the the data on things that were happening in there, the crime data. There was a lot of prostitution, of course, and not murder rate wasn't so high, but certainly the knifing and all that was high. And that's because the police didn't want to control it. They were being paid off. And the mayor, um, Hunsinger, was right on top of that doing the same thing. So that's how it became so wild. And when Wyatt got there in 86, um, you know, it was at the height of the, that period. It eventually gets um, different. The citizens are demanding in 88 that things get under control. Then there's public hearings, and Wyatt himself is called on the rug about his gambling. Um, lies and says he's not doing it. But that's the beauty of the San Diego events. You can see how this all unfolds in the newspaper articles. My book goes through it, but you got... You got Hunsinger, who's the mayor, who's Wyatt's buddy from um, Tombstone. Hunsinger was a San Diego guy, um, attorney, and went to Tombstone about 79, became friends with Wyatt, did mining law, and then came back because the weather wasn't good for him, apparently. He came back in 81, December, um, right after the gun battle, then started doing his stuff in San Diego. So Wyatt was colluding with Hunsinger. And we know he concluded with Joseph Coyne, the police chief. The police chief, Joseph Coyne, was like a, an Irish guy with a big family. He didn't make a lot of money. And there were hints that he was corrupt when you read things. I actually got to interview, I think it's the great, great granddaughter of Coyne, who happened to be a police detective in San Diego at the time. And that conversation went on, and I'm thinking i want to ask her about was your great great grandfather on 
on the take from Wyatt Earp, and I didn't even have to ask it. She told me that's the truth, and that um, Coyne was at their house all the time. And again, it was a case of they didn't have enough money. So Wyatt was running this scam thing where he was controlling the politicians, had buddies, the police chief, and just worked the whole system. That's the beautiful part about the book and his time in San Diego. It shows how smart he was, had a little reputation, so people liked him. He was generally a nice guy, but it really showed apparent, you know, just crystal clear how that all worked. So if you're wondering who this guy is, this intelligent human being that we're talking to on my newest podcast, and you're talking to Garner Polinski. He wrote the book Wyatt Earp in San Diego, Life After Tombstone. Uh, you can find it at Amazon, and so be sure to get it. The book is 205 pages. It is brilliantly written. Um, the pages are very high gloss, and there is almost a picture on every page. Now, sometimes there's, there isn't, but there, it's, he's, he's included in the book newspaper clippings. There is some stuff in there with Stuart Lake. He's included uh, deep uh, research pictures from museums and, and historical places where, you know, I, was, it, was the Huntington Library included in this one? Yeah, yes. that could have been my favorite place to go. You I spent said days at the Huntington going through mostly the Stuart Lake collection, which right. had timelines about where, where Wyatt went. So that was a favorite spot and still is to research and very productive. So if you know that's where he's going and getting the information, it's got true provenance, and this is going to be a book that you want to get. And so again, this is uh, we're talking to Garner, and uh, this is Wyatt Earp in San Diego, Life After Tombstone, that you can find on Amazon. You you mentioned in the book, and I'm going to go back a little bit, uh, the relationship with Hunsinger, because not only was he in San Diego, but you had mentioned in the book that there's multiple people that had from Tombstone that had ended up in San Diego. Can you expand on that? That's yeah, really interesting. You know, being a wider fan in the big picture, I never knew about this. But what you had is um, when the boom hits in Tombstone, let's call that 79, it's starting, a bunch of San Diego guys who were, you know, the, the um, boomtown kind of guys go to um, Tombstone, and when Tombstone starts drying up, they come back to San Diego. So some really good examples, we talked about Hunsinger, who was White Earp's attorney, mayor of San Diego, etc., but a very prominent person in the um, Fremont Street gun battle saga is Albert Wallace, A.O. Wallace. So Wallace was a guy from San Diego, he was like a printer, he was a justice of the peace, he did a lot of different stuff, and he went to... Um, Tombstone, I think, in about 1880. Now, now um, Osborne is very important in the story of the gun battle because if you remember, the morning of the gun battle, which would be October 26, 1881, um, Ike Clams arrested by Virgil Earp for threatening to kill Virgil Earp. So he takes him to the judge. That judge is A.L. Wallace, San Diego guy. And what does Wallace do? He slaps him with a $25 fine and releases him. So what's so important about that is probably if he would have thrown Ike Clanton in jail and let him cool off for a day or two, you and I wouldn't be talking today. The whole Wyatt Earp, OK Corral thing would be gone. Wyatt Earp would be a name nobody knew. So A.L. Wallace was a prominent guy in the gun battle saga. 
the other people, I think the one that's interesting, kind of second most interesting, was E.B. Gifford, who's an Arizona gambler, but hears about the San Diego stuff, comes to San Diego, and is Wyatt's buddy. Um, he colludes with Wyatt and is his partner. Gifford was really prominent in San Diego. He actually donated a portion of the land that the University of Arizona in Tucson sits on now and seemed to be a prominent citizen. But I know he did some sketchy stuff. I think John Bosnigger, when I talked to him about E.B. Gifford, told me he was, sorry, bad word, a slippery bastard. So John had similar opinion of that. Um, other people in this connection thing, we have Thomas Finch, OK Corral, um, episode defense attorney for the Earps, comes back to San Diego, has a great career as a attorney in San Diego and also publishes a lot of newspaper articles. So you can see that correlation and I could go on. There's many people that did that. It was only 500 miles away. And these, for the Boomtown guys, that wasn't a great distance to travel. So these people are coming in and out of Tombstone, not coming in and out, but how many of them after Tombstone, the mines flooded, the Earps are gone, how many of the people came back? Or did some stay? Or, or was there travel back and forth between the two towns? I'd say after the mines are flooding, which happened pretty early in the growth of Tombstone, I think that was a 1881 or 1880 starting. So the mines were declining and people were trying to do their best. I think the majority of the boom counters went to other places. One would be the Arquahala, which is an 1889 event, very short event. And other places went to Alaska and all over. Um, some did come back. I think Albert Fort Lewis Tombstone Merchant was a Tombstone Merchant, came back to San Diego and opened another um, mercantile-type place. So I would say generally the Boomtown crowd, it was kind of the same people going to all the places around um, the West. So, I'm, To switch gears a little bit, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you unearthed about the Hotel Del Coronado and Coronado Island. So you had mentioned in the book that why and and we know this about Wyatt that he was always on the hunt for money, whether he was speculating, he was building saloons, gambling, whatever it was. But you unearthed information about Coronado Island that was not has not really been previously discussed or not, maybe not even known. He got into horse racing, but he also got into land. And, and purchasing land. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Coronado um, uh, is very interesting. And when we have, I said that Virgil and Wyatt were here in November of 1886, about November 3rd. The Coronado land sale started about the same time. And I know Josie talks about in the Quezon manuscript that they saw the foundation being poured. That kind of opens in 1887. So the Earps are here for that land sale. Um, there's really good information that I found about that. And of course, tying all the sources in that they were there. And Wyatt didn't buy any land in Coronado. I don't know what was up with that, whether that was he didn't have capital then, but he bought many properties in San Diego. And the San Diego stuff is pretty much down by the Embarcadero. He probably had five properties there, 
and two more in maybe you would call it central San Diego. What's interesting is all those properties, only one had a house on it or a structure, and that was a stable for the horses that he had. He really, Josie and him really lived in hotels the whole time they were in San Diego, and that was um, not the hotels that are generally known. For instance, the Bellevue Hotel was run by Mrs. Burns. The Earps went there first when they came in 1886 and stayed there the majority of the time. The more I researched that further, their sources would say nearly all the time they're in San Diego and came back to see Mrs. Burns later in life um, in the 1920s. The place they stayed sometimes was the Plaza Palace. We know that from a city directory. That's pretty much, was pretty much very close to where the kiosk is in Horton Plaza. So those were kind of the two places they stayed, um, Bellevue first, and then of course they stayed at the same teams for some period of time when they first got there. But White Herb's deal was to speculate in lands. He was smart. He did that in Tombstone. He did that in most places. I think he had those five properties. Um, today you would just see houses or I think a couple of vacant lots now. But he didn't do well with the properties because in some areas there was, I could be wrong, what, back taxes? Well, so you got the boom of 1885. So everything goes crazy. Land sales, land prices go up. Everybody's buying and selling. And then things go really bad probably in 1889 in many ways for Wyatt. One was uh, the, the real estate lost its value. So when it lost its value, he sold many of those properties quick. He sold some for back taxes. So really, probably net on those those real estate um, ventures, he got nothing and probably was in the negative on that. The Coronado years, I'm going to go back to Coronado, if, yeah. you, if you don't mind. Because I've been to Coronado Island. You take a bridge now to get on the island. There was a lot going on because there was, there were, there were, times that I think Virgil, you wrote about Virgil and Wyatt going on the island and getting the, there were huge like sales up to like 10,000 people on the island. And there was trains going back and forth. Expand on that because that is a fascinating story. Yeah. You know, the, all this land was for sale and people, wealthy people from primarily Los Angeles would come down. There was all kinds of things going. There was a Coronado stables being built there and that photo you see in the book um which has great provenance from the history center shows a picture of that very, that opened very close to the time of the land sale and then the picture that i believe is virgil which would be of interest to everybody there's tight tight prom- provenance on that and that was going on um the herbs love to go to the court to coronado and to the Dell. Even in the 20s, they went to Tent City, the old Dell thing where they set up tents and you can kind of camp on the beach. So they were there a lot. If you were going to come to San Diego and you wanted to go to a place that um, White Earp really went, go to the lobby of the Dell, um, the historic lobby. We know he was there. I know they didn't stay there, though, which is interesting because I checked out the registers for the Dell. But they were there a lot. They loved the action. I'm sure there was side betting going on with Wyatt and Virgil, but that was the first place they came and looked around and it enticed them to stay in the city. It's crazy to think 
because I've, I've been to hotel. Now I got to go back to hotel Dell because when I went, you know, every, my mom and dad stayed there and you see this big, beautiful hotel and it's, you know, and it's world famous. And to think that they were there when the foundation was being poured, how did you unearth that information? Um, you know, there were many sources. We know from the newspaper that they were there. And then the case on manuscript had that specifically from Josie. So you got to take all these sources with a grain of salt, especially that one. But really, I don't know there's any compelling reason she would exaggerate. She saw the, the foundation of the Dell being poured. So based on that, I took that as a legitimate source. Mm-hmm. And we knew they were there the time of the land sale because of the hotel directory. So again, we're talking to Wyatt Earp. <laughs> we're not talking to Wyatt Earp. I'm talking to Garner Polinsky, who wrote the book about Wyatt Earp and San Diego Life After Tombstone. You can find this amazing book on Amazon, and I urge you to get it and read it and add it to your Wyatt Earp collection. When, when Wyatt was... He And he wasn't just in San Diego proper, because San Diego County is big. And he chased some mining claims uh, down um, uh, in southern San Diego County along the Mexican border. And then you wrote about some stuff, how he really moved around and got down south of the border into Tijuana. Is that right? Yeah, you know, Wyatt was looking for any type of mining enterprise. And right about the time he was doing the Harkwahala, which is 1888, that's in Arizona, um, 1888, 1889, there was a big strike, which I would call inland from Ensenada, and it was the Santa Clara. So there was big information about that. A lot of people went down. He was one of them. And I just unearthed a reference in the newspaper that talked about him running a mercantile down there. So the time he's doing the Harkwahala investing on that, he's running a mercantile probably by, you know, remotely and just funding it. He was there. I couldn't unearth much about the mining strikes because it's in Mexico. I did talk to some people at the university. I don't in Tijuana. That wasn't much help, but he was any place he could go. And of course, he did all the um, really fascinating stuff about the prize fighting along the border. Half of it was in Mexico, half in in the States. But when you mentioned in your book, you spoke about the prize fighting, but you also talked a lot about uh, bullfighting. Um, and you explained that part and how it ended up relating to Wyatt Earp. That's just a crazy story that was fascinating. Um, and it's really a bigger picture than just Wyatt Earp. You know, you have this this wild border area. All the borders are wild at this time. You can say that about the Arizona um, Mexican border and all the shenanigans that went on with the wrestlers. San Diego was no different. So to show you like the level of debauchery going on, maybe, um, this is really interesting that they would actually go catch bears. They'd be on horses with lassos. I don't know how they would do this. That's They'd crazy. catch bears, bring them back and put them in a ring with a bull and the bear would fight the bull. So it was just horrendous thing that somebody would do but they did that frequently and involved in that event would be gambling of course there could be prize fighting but there was no law there and people did what they did but i could always i just can't even picture how somebody would catch a bear you don't they didn't sedate them 
they got them with ropes they were on horses like vaquero style so that was going on at the border and that of course attracted wyatt down there because there was money to be made and then you know he's a lifelong um, boxing fan and referee and did just all kinds of fun things we would think of today along the border there because it was crazy when you wrote it in the book you mentioned how <clears throat> excuse me you mentioned how um the the bull and bear wasn't going to happen and then they moved it to different locations is that right and then and then finally uh, uh the governor or the mayor of that area stopped it until eventually the 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 federale stopped it and then there was money exchanged and then you're on yeah it was interesting mike because you had this soft border and you didn't have mutual aid agreement between the law enforcement on both sides, federales or local Tijuana um, police and our police, which you had minimal police force along the border there. So they would um, have these prize fights. And at this time, these were illegal because they were bare knuckle. At about this time in history, 1889, the legal prize fights were gloved um, participants, which did go on in, in um, San Diego, Wyatt refereed you know, a few of those events, which were legitimate events. But at the border, they would have the ring set up, say, on the American border, you know, just a brutal bare-knuckle fight where people are fighting. And if the police came, they'd simply move it across the border. So they just move it three feet to the other side, and the law enforcement wouldn't do anything, and vice versa. Why it was quoted, I think, in the deposition stuff on Sharky Fix Simmons about his refereeing career, that he had done such an event and they put the ring right on the border. So it was, it was bisected by um, the U.S. and Mexico. And he made out um, a humorous comment that he would saw this event going on. He's the referee and there's a big guy and a little guy. And the little guy is getting pounded. And he said he was pounded so hard that he was knocked clear into another country. <laughs> so... Um, Quite a lot going on with that. I think he said in deposition with the Crabtree affair that he had refereed some 30 fights in the Tijuana area. So pretty lawless. I think that continued. I don't know how long into history, but certainly when Wyatt was there, it was all that. It's crazy. Um, was there anything... You mentioned something, and I, I kind of wrote it down, that you just unearthed something. Are you planning a book two? Yeah, I don't uh -oh. think I am. No. It was just, um, I have other topics on my mind that I'm pursuing about wider, but um, the, the stuff I found, it's weird. When I started the research project, so the book came out in 2011, so let's say it was a two-year adventure, so whatever, 20, 2009. Um, really, we were just going from hard copy um, resource to digital. So when I was doing a lot of the work and there was good merit to doing this, you'd go to the microfilm or microfish and look, now we can search, go on, you know, historic newspapers on library of Congress, pick a, you know, Arizona newspaper, start searching for wider by name and you get the answer. So that's how I found the thing about, um, him actually two things. The thing about him running the mercantile in, um, Arizona that I was just randomly doing that search and then I found some stuff um, about him roughing up a local San Diego policeman 
at the time, which I didn't find myself. So the digital um, resources now are crazy, good and bad. I mean, the, the good news is you can get to the answer quicker. The bad news is you don't get to read the newspapers. And there's such value in reading the newspaper because then you understand what's going on. So that's how I found um, that thing about the mercantile at the Santa Clara. David DeHaas, I think you know David. Yeah, good guy. So David DeHaas has got a, was working on a new book um, with, um, uh, I can't remember his name, Ch- uh, Chappet? Don, yeah, Don Chappet. Don, Ch- Don Chappet. And so he's got a new book coming out, and he said the same thing. He said as when the first book came out, and if you don't know, David wrote a book about the Earps in Santa Monica, in Los Angeles, and bootlegging, and uh, in the veterans' home. If you guys, I urge you to get that one because that is another fascinating book that uh, talks all about the Earps in Los Angeles because so much of it's focused on Tombstone, but there's so much more that really went on that after Tombstone, there's even more history there that that needs to be unearthed and read and studied and uh and i urge you guys to get the the david book um and i have a podcast about that so if you guys go through my podcast channel you'll actually see the interview there and i urge you to listen to that one um was there anything that you unearthed and read in the research of your book that didn't make it um and why? Or, um, or was everything there? Um, there was... Um, I got you off guard. Yeah, I think... I think... So we can... Yeah, we can kind of swing to the Harkawahala on that. I okay. Think, which, which the Harkawahala strike, it's... it's um, what would we call it? We we call it west of Phoenix. It's an area that's well, like Salome, Arizona. Have you been there? So, yeah, I did. It's such a cool thing, you know. I did the research on the Harkwahala in the book. Then there were all kinds of questions. So I went, did more research, got copies of his mining claims. Mm-hmm. Then I did a field site visit out there with my friend and using, you know, I'm an engineer. I was trained in surveying stuff. So we went out and surveyed and started looking for the mining claims. And we probably found the Josephine mine. So we spent a day out there, probably two days, one getting the lay of the land. And then we used GPS based on coordinates we developed. So I think that was just wonderful. And if you want to read about that, that's in the Wild West History Association Journal but also in the wider anthology book, which I was really excited. I was invited to submit on that, that Casey and Roy Young did. And that's got the expanded version of Harkwahala. So why it goes there, and there was a lot of scuttlebutt of what he did. So I really was looking hard. The, the big picture, or the big point that I'm really looking for is, you know, I have kind of an idea how big the Harkwahala city was, but that's a missing... Um, piece i have a plat mining map of the harkwahala area like three years after why it's there so it doesn't show a lot of the structures so i'd say that's a big question that i still want to do and i'm probably going to be doing a book project about that eventually but that's a big thing i know it doesn't sound too exciting to everybody but just how robust that city was um questions about whether he ran a saloon there just all kinds of stuff well let's talk about it because people are going to be like, Harkahala, what's that? 
because it is rarely discussed and it isn't something that is, you know, in the, in the Wild West history, you know, uh, wider knowledge is rarely spoken about. So if you guys, if anybody drives between the, on Interstate 10 between Los Angeles and Phoenix and the Arizona side, actually between the Colorado River State Line area and Phoenix, you'll see an exit that says Harkahala. And you get off the freeway and you take the road and it will take you right to the area, not to, you know, of that. But it's a fascinating story how Wyatt finds out about this gold rush or rush, you know, and he goes there and realizes that the money is or the the money isn't really in the mining. It's in saloons. It's in gambling. It's in the. The, what's needed to run a city and a town, and he claims it's going to be as big, if not bigger, than Tombstone, goes back to San Diego, expand on that, because it it is, for me, as an Arizonan, one of my most favorite parts of the book. And I actually read that chapter several times, and then I went out to Harkahala myself. Expand. Oh, cool. Um yeah, so um, I think it's February of 89. Um, people, you know, prospectors discover gold in the Harkwahala. So everybody's looking for the next big thing. You know, the, the Tombstone Mining Fraternity needs something else to do, and Phoenix isn't that far away. So a lot of people go to that. Nellie Cashman's there running a restaurant, we know. Chabelle's there. Just a bunch of the Tombstoners, if you will, went there. So Wyatt sees it while he's in San Diego, he gets um, makes a quick trip out there, checks it out, comes back and is telling the newspaper it's the next big thing. Um, and he goes with um, John Bry- Tom Bryson, who's his buddy from San Diego, had a mining um, past also. So eventually they come back and they get Amy Bryson and Josie and go back to the Harkwahala ready to open a saloon. So they're there. Um, they build some saloon of some kind because if you look at his tax records, you can see he um, claims like liquor and all the saloon supplies. So I don't know if that was two barrels and a plank of wood or how significant the structure was. But they're there and he's claiming, uh, you know, doing mining claims because of land speculation, hoping to sell those, which is commonly done. So he had probably five claims that I know of and I found those claims through research, have copies of them. And then he was going to rename the town, if you would call what that was, the town of Colton is what he quotes in the newspaper, which is where his parents were living. Colton, Arizona, um, goes back to get supplies for that, and pretty much that fizzles out pretty quickly. Although, you know, there could be mining there today, and there was mining there um, certainly over the years. Now, one of the um, really fun things about the Harkwahala is you had all these tombstoners there doing all kinds of things. It didn't have much law enforcement. It had a Wells Fargo office, we know, um, which shows it was significant in the minds of Wells Fargo. And there were quite a few characters, one being Carmelita Campbell, who was a mining legend in Arizona um, and befriended Wyatt Earp and actually was a witness on many of the mining claims I found. So that was a that's a really interesting character that's deserving of a book there, and I have that on my radar. So that came and went. You know, the Harkwala happened. 
um, why it came back. It's interesting because the newspaper has a for sale um, ad that Wyatt published for pretty much the horses and the, the wagon he used to bring his supplies back, which I thought was interesting. I thought he would have sold them off there. But uh, you can see it. The address is that that a stable property I was talking about earlier. So um, I think that was bigger in Wyatt's mind than it really was, but certainly fascinating, pretty lawless. Um, not the longevity of the main boom, though, was pretty short, probably one year only. Well, when I read the book, there was a lot of things in the in the book that fascinated me. And, and it's it's minor, but I'll bring it up so people kind of understand. The Harkahala area has no water. There is no water anywhere. And you're a long way from Phoenix, which is the biggest city. And you mentioned about the cost of bringing goods to Phoenix was very, um, from Phoenix to Harkahala was very expensive. Um, it was like, what, three cents a pound or 30 cents a pound, I think you mentioned? Um, yeah, it was very expensive. Very expensive to bring goods from Phoenix to Harkahala. And then when you brought it there, it there's no water. And that's the biggest problem. And they ended up doing um, placer mining, I believe that's what you said. Yeah, and they did. You know, the, that was really the decider, now that you mentioned that. Because if you didn't have water, the possibility you could have a, you know, a city was mm. not strong. So I know that Wyatt was writing things in the newspaper saying they hadn't struck water till it was so deep and it wasn't practical to get it. And then I believe at the end of the day, they did discover water. You know, the Harkwahala kind of went away because there was another town down the, the uh, hill from that. I I don't know if that's Salome, but I one think of it's the... Salome. Here. Yeah, and that had water, so it was better to kind of... Um, process you are down there, get it from the Harkwahala and bring it down the hill and process it with the water. So that helped the, the Harkwahala to fizzle out also. Right. The other part is that you mentioned, and and I'm going to pull our mutual friend Roy B. Young into this. You mentioned in the book that the the train ran to the a stop called Sentinel. Yep. And Sentinel, Arizona is between Gila Bend and Yuma. And it was a rail line, and the rail line would come to Sentinel. And if you want more information, I urge you guys to get the book about Pete Spence. Now, we know Pete Spence from Tombstone. He was involved, possibly involved, in um, the shooting of Virgil Earp, I believe. Um, or no, Morgan Earp. I think he was, he was named in that. And... He was at one point, at one time, in Sentinel, working in Sentinel. So if you want to see a correlation how, you know, Tombstone, how big Tombstone is and how much it affected history, you know, the players of Tombstone, they were all over. And so here you have White Earp actually coming into an area, not at the exact time, but coming into an area where Pete Spence also worked. And that's how they got the goods to Harkahala was bringing the train to Sentinel. It's just, it's crazy. It's fascinating how it's all linked together. You, you, you told a funny story. There's a funny story about White Earps not really having a great sense of humor. Tell us about what happened with Josie and a fake snake. Yeah, that's an interesting story about the Harkahala. 
Um, Josie probably didn't tease Wyatt very much. He was pretty stoic. But in that case, let's see. Bryson and Wyatt are out um, getting whatever native um, vegetation they needed for the horses. And, you know, this is a rough area. Still, it hasn't developed. There's a lot of snakes around. And they're living in a tent with a wooden floor Wyatt put in. So while the guys were gone, they discovered a big rattlesnake in the tent and got their next-door neighbor to come and kill it. So he killed it. It was a large snake. And they decided to play a joke on Wyatt, so they put it in the tent, laid it down like it was still alive and stuff, under one of the beds and, you know, came screaming out when Wyatt was there saying, there's a giant snake, please take care of it. So he probably got out, who knows, shotgun, and went in to take care of the snake and then realized it was... Um, pretty much already dead mm-hmm. and then Wyatt chastised Josie for doing that like you know um, that that would uh, make him not respond to other things like that um, so yeah he didn't seem to have much of a sense of humor if that's an indication of how much he had I mean I, I think it's almost like the little boy you know crying wolf and exactly so it was kind of a funny story and, and he didn't appreciate it at all Again, we're talking with Garner Polinski, somebody I've been wanting to interview, and I, I just, I love the book. I've actually read the book three times. The book is called Wyatt Earp in San Diego, Life After Tombstone. You can find it at Amazon. I urge you to get it. Um, again, beautiful quality paper. The paper is just insane, which make, make brings the pictures out. We have just a little bit of time, so I'm going to ask you, would you come back for a part two? You bet, if you'd like to. Yes, because we haven't even spoken about the Sharky uh, Fitzsimmons fight, which you've spoken about. We haven't even spoken about his horse racing, and which is a big part of it, including um, you know Ben Harrison and Dipsy and Jim Leach, and I mean they're just crazy about the horse racing. We, don't, we may not come back to a full podcast, but I do want to speak speak more about that about the fight in San Francisco. Um, I lost my train of thought. Um, But is there something um, in the whole story of Wyatt in San Diego that really defined Wyatt? Was it like something so profound that really put him on the map in San Diego? And I think it's a better, maybe a way to look at him differently you know people have different opinions of them from seeing all this and studying this and reading things like other people have done it really kind of shows you that maybe he was a man of the period you know he never really wanted to be a police officer for love of the law he wanted to be a police officer because they collected the taxes and got paid well so really he was a man that wanted to elevate his social status And he saw being like a capitalist, you know, a sporting man, that type of person was where he wanted to go. That was always his goal. That's why he had saloons places. That's why he did land investment. So you see a different guy that really became a law enforcement guy out of convenience. And I think the comment about being a man of his period, you know, there's strong evidence that Wyatt definitely was a pimp in Illinois. I mean, strong evidence the the ladies when they were arrested carried the last name etc and i don't think there's any doubt about that 
but you kind of factor that all in of what this guy's about for this period of time and you get a better look at him rather than some guy that fought for the love of the law and da 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 i'm not sure that's really accurate about him i think he had a different look at things and different objectives well we're definitely going to bring garner back for part two and it won't really be a part two it'll be a continuation of because even though the book is 205 pages long we didn't cover as much as we want as i wanted to and and honestly when i do these podcasts like i don't have any pre-made questions i if you're listening right now i listen just like you do and i get involved in the story and sometimes i forget that i'm on the phone um and it's 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 the reason why I do the podcast. Uh, if you've ever wondered, I do the podcast for a friend of mine. His name is Dave up in Tehachapi. Uh, this podcast is actually dedicated to Dave, but Dave can't read anymore. He's got he's in his nineties. He's got horrible eyesight, and one of the things that he does is he listens to the podcast. And Dave's been going to Tombstone since the nineteen forties. 1940s, 1950s, and he and we talk all the time. And Dave, if you're listening to this, this podcast is for you. Of course, you can find uh, Wyatt Earp in San Diego, Life After Tombstone by Garner Polinsky at Amazon. Also, uh, reach out if you join. I know that Garner is a member. Join the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. It's true researched uh, history, and it connects you with people like Garner and John and Roy and all the people that I've done, the, and, and Peter Brand, I would hate to forget mentioning Peter, that it connects you with them. And that's how that's how you want to find out about history is true provenance history, not just history that, you know, you get off of the watching the movie Tombstone or that you see on television or you might get, you know, like on a chat group. Like the Wild West History Association is where it's at. I also want to thank my friend Mark Boardman at the Tombstone Epitaph. I urge you to subscribe. Be, uh, get Western History, Arizona's longest-running newspaper, right to your door. And that is a Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com. So until, oh, and I really, and I forget too, uh, do something nice for people. There's a lot of craziness going on. My charity is St. Mary's Food Bank. Find a charity near you that that you can give to or volunteer some time because of all the craziness going on in the world today, people are needing help more than ever. And it might be something as just going to your church and volunteering or bringing in the trash cans for an elderly couple or buying a gift card to dinner for your neighbor next door or going down to a food bank and, and, and helping out and getting food out to folks that need it. Uh, you do those things, you're going to feel great about yourself and you're going to be helping some people. So if you need to get a hold of me, you can do so on my blue-collar email at hvacreferguy at gmail.com. That's H-V-A-C-R-E-F-E-R-Guy at gmail.com. You can find me there. And if you like the podcast on iTunes, please hit that subscribe button. Leave me a comment. Give me a rating. Hopefully it's five-star because that helps with distribution. You can also find the podcast on YouTube. I'm moving all my podcasts over to YouTube. So if you're a YouTuber, you can find me there. And uh, and this book is insane. You guys are going to absolutely love it. I recommend you get it. Get on Amazon, order it, read it, add it to your collection, and, and you will not be able to put it down. Like I said, I've read it three times. So I appreciate you guys a bunch. I appreciate Garner. Uh, safe travels, and we'll see you next time.